0: This is Law for Community Workers On The Go, a podcast for community and health workers. In today's episode, Natalie from our Community Legal Education branch will be talking to Suzanne Parker from the Government Law Team who specialises in the NDIS. This is part one of a two-part series looking deeper into the specifics of getting access to the NDIS and planning. If you're new to the NDIS or would just like a refresher, we'd recommend you go back to episode 10 of this podcast, which is called NDIS The Basics, and start there. We hope you enjoy today's episode, part one, accessing the NDIS. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we are recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and also extend that respect to any Indigenous people who may be listening.
1: I'm from the Community Legal Education team here at Legal Aid New South Wales, and today I'm talking with Suzanne Parker. You might recognise her voice from an earlier podcast we did on the NDIS, and today we're taking that conversation a bit further. So welcome, Suzanne. Hi, Natalie. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you very much. Thanks
2: for having me back.
1: Today is just a conversation uh, with a lawyer. It's not legal advice. If you do want specific legal advice about the NDIS, our recommendation is always to call Law Access New South Wales as your first point of call or your local Legal Aid office. Suzanne, there's a lot of information online about the NDIS, so why is this podcast important or different?
2: I think for our listeners out there, it's an opportunity to have a conversation with me and ask me questions that you might ask at a barbecue. Or you just, hey, Suzanne, I've got some questions about the NDIS. Um, And so it's very conversational. And as a lawyer practicing in this area, I hopefully have some tips and ways to troubleshoot so that you don't have to end up with me.
1: Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we'll try and anticipate the questions that people might have today. I'm going to set this up to start with, I guess, if you are working in the community somebody comes to you and says they've either heard about the NDIS but they're not yet a participant or maybe a client comes to to a community worker and the worker might notice that or they've come to talk about something else they're struggling with parenting or debts or money matters but Mm -hmm. you notice that there might be something about that person that you think they might benefit from having supports being Mm -hmm. part of the NDIS um We've also heard of um, lawyers having clients perhaps who might mention they have a brain injury, but they're not yet on the NDIS. So what does this hypothetical community worker in the community do? What's the first step?
2: So the first step is applying. And um, to you, a person can make an access request as many times as they like. There's no cap on the number. So um, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to get your first application right, but it also means that you, you do have additional opportunities Um, if you don't get access on the first attempt. Um, Now, to make an access request, the first thing that you need to do is get a form. Um, Like all government agencies, the NDIA also have a lot of forms. Um, And the one that you're looking for here is called the access request form. And the way that you can obtain this form is in two ways. One, you can call the 1-800 on the um, NDIA's website, or you can go to your local NDIA office and ask for the form.
1: Great. Is it available on the website or you need to call up? The form is not available on the website. Okay. So you need to make that first Mm -hmm. contact by phone or in person. That's right. So this client that you Mm -hmm. think maybe they could benefit from the NDIS, is there any help for them on actually filling out the form?
2: So as a community worker, you can help them fill out that form. The basic details will be filled out by the client. No one needs to fill it out for you. Um, But there are parts of the form which do require your doctor or someone else to fill it out on your behalf. And this can be a doctor or a social
1: worker or a community worker. So legal aid doesn't get involved at that stage. You don't help people fill out forms?
2: No. And I think, I think that's for the reason that the some of the information really does need to come from your doctor or the supporting mm. report. So there's a couple options. You can either tick a box that says my doctor will fill out this form and they will go through and fill out things like your disability and diagnoses, any treatment that you've had, um, as well as the impact of your impairments. Otherwise, they can tick a box that allows you to provide reports and forms that the agency, then glean the information that they need.
1: So it should be someone who knows you and your conditions quite well. Yeah, and I guess
2: that person depends, Um, so who that person might be might be different for you and it might be different for me depending on what disabilities we have. And that's a really important point to think carefully about who you do want this form to be filled out by. For someone that has mental health problems, I might suggest that they ask their psychologist or their psychiatrist to fill out the forms, and even in deciding between those two, the psychologist and the psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. you might think that if you've had a, a very long relationship with your psychologist they might have the most and best information to fill out those forms whereas you might only see your psychiatrist on a yearly basis so have a think about that um, and weigh that up if you have lots of conditions lots of different conditions that are really impacting one another you might ask your gp to fill out that form because they have a great overview of everything that's going on for you whereas if you have one or two very specialized conditions you might ask your specialist to fill out that form
1: and you've seen situations where people have put in that initial form, but maybe not yeah, thought about it enough or ticked the right boxes. So so, and what's the flow-on effect of that?
2: So that's really that's a really yeah. interesting point that you raised, Natalie. Unfortunately, when that form has been filled out by someone, they ticked no to a lot of the boxes where the person required support. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, a really key thing. If you're saying that you need support, you need to be able to demonstrate
1: some of these key areas that you need help in. So I think one situation you were talking about was that somebody was seeking help for employment, but the form doesn't specifically talk about employment. That's right. So the form asks you about six different categories, kind of
2: areas of everyday living. That includes your mobility, your ability to communicate with others, Uh, social interaction, learning, self-care, and self-management. So like you said, employment doesn't really fit any one of those boxes, but this person needed support to be okay in the workplace. And so when you looked at it at face value, sure, she doesn't fit in any of those boxes. So her, the person that filled that out for her, ticked no to all of those boxes. And so that was a very easy no for the agency to make. So what I really would encourage people to do so if you have a situation like that where you think I really need supports, but it doesn't fit in any of these boxes, think really creatively about in the case of employment, what are the skills that you need to do to be okay in a job, you need to be able to talk to your colleagues, you need to be able to send and write emails, you need to be able to uh, Come to work appropriately dressed and appropriately groomed you need to be able to um, manage your time so that you come to work on time so those are all things that this person needed some assistance with and so instead of no she didn't fit the box there's not a box for employment but when you look very broadly at the skills required for employment she fit in all of the boxes
1: so you saw that person because her application for the NDAS mm-hmm. was rejected that's right based on that application form Mm -hmm. and then she had to go through process of reviews or appeals that we'll talk we'll get to Mm -hmm. later
2: that's right
1: so i guess what we're talking about now is how to avoid Mm -hmm. coming to see you and getting into Mm -hmm. that problem that's right yeah Okay, so is is there more about the form itself?
2: Yeah, there is a little bit more that you need to know about the form. Um, You can provide reports with the forms, and I think these are also very important. You can provide some reports from your past. Maybe you mentioned someone with a traumatic brain injury. They'd like to provide some reports about their rehabilitation and where their baseline function is right now. Having a, a think about where those reports are coming from and how old they are is really important. Um, I've seen cases where the person has provided reports there from when the person was seven years old and then there's no reports and the person's now applying when they're 21. So there's a huge gap in knowledge and information as to what really is happening for that person currently. So providing current reports is very important. Is there a cost for people to do those reports? Is yeah, that a barrier? It is, yeah. it is, and that is a barrier. Uh, unfortunately, some of these reports can be quite expensive. Um, the agency has provided... Some tips on their website about what to ask your doctor to try to minimise some of those costs. Um, some basic questions about some of your areas of functioning as well as treatment will be a very good start in starting your application. The cost of the reports. So within the NDIS Act, there's a section, section 6 which says the agency may provide support and assistance, including financial assistance. I don't have experience of that on the ground, but I think it's, it's worthwhile putting out there and for people to know that there may be some circumstances where the agency can pay for reports. Um, you might have to ask for this. You might have to refer them to legislation, but it's, it's something that gives you knowledge and maybe a little bit of empowerment in this structure with the agency.
1: Definitely. And if that's not possible, so the the 21-year-olds, say they have a report from when they were 15 or 17, Mm -hmm. like it's a few years old, um, is that something they can use in this application process?
2: I think that's a judgment call, Natalie. So if you're providing reports for someone who's 40 and um, the reports are maybe when they were 35, early 30s, and nothing's really changed in their life, that might be a more appropriate circumstance that you could provide some older reports but if you're providing reports for a child, that age gap between 15 and 21, mm. I would suggest, is probably not okay.
1: Yeah, I guess it depends on the, the circumstances and the nature of the Absolutely, situation. absolutely. Yeah. So, Suzanne, you've given your access request form to your doctor. What happens after that? So then your
2: doctor needs to fill out that form. and. I would encourage you to be there when that form is filled out. So if, if that's with your GP, you can be in the room and then that gives them the opportunity to ask you questions about some of these areas of functioning. So instead of them filling it out based on what they might remember about you from the last appointment, they can sit there and they can ask you, hey, Natalie, what's your mobility like? How far can you walk? That level of detail will be really important to uh, helping you to get easy access into the scheme it's not so helpful if you say yeah she can walk to the shops i don't know how far the yeah. shops are or yeah she can drive but you know what you can only actually drive for five minutes and when you get out of the car you are absolutely exhausted mm-hmm. so we need to have a good level of detail and so if you have that opportunity and i would really encourage you to try to do that to be there when that form is filled out so that the right amount of detail can be put into this form
1: So sometimes you might have a really strong application, but it's still rejected by Mm -hmm. the NDIA, the National Disability Insurance Agency. Mm -hmm. What happens then? Um, Sometimes I see paperwork and
2: I think, wow, this is a really strong application. But there there might be some legal things in there that make it a bit sticky. And that's not your fault. That's really the way that the legislation works. One of the things that might be a bit sticky and something that we've just seen a recent case come out about is whether obesity would be considered to be um, a disability. So that is something that's just come out, and because of your obesity, you've got lots of problems with your mobility and pretty reduced functional capacity across all the areas. Unfortunately, that's the way that the decision has been made. It doesn't matter whether I think a person should be accepted. It's ultimately up to a tribunal member if this is where you get, and there might be some sticky legal arguments there. That doesn't necessarily reflect on your access request, it's a technical legal argument and sometimes that's the way that the cards fall. And it's to do with definitions? It's to do with definitions and interpretations of the legislation and in particular, certain words. So after you've put in your access
1: request form, then what mm-hmm. happens?
2: Then they will go back to the agency and a delegate from the NDIA will make a decision. If you are unsuccessful at that stage, then you have three months from the date that you received the letter to appeal that decision. That's what's called an internal review. So someone other than the original decision maker will make a new decision based on that evidence. You're also um, able to put in some new evidence. So you might have some updated reports. You might want to think about writing a statement, sometimes a a statement from you about your ability to... be mobile in the community, or to socialize with other people, that might be really worthwhile putting in. And to help you do that, I would encourage you to jump online and find a disability advocate. That's someone that's free, and many of them do have some experience and some even specialize in helping people with NDIS reviews.
1: So after three months, if somebody has left it a bit long, Mm -hmm. is there anything they can do then?
2: They would have to make a new access request. So, you know, it's not fatal that your first application um, doesn't get through. It's not fatal if you don't get around to putting in the internal review for whatever reasons. And I recognize that a lot of people with disabilities, it's three months goes by really quickly when you're just consumed with how difficult life is. Um, So if you don't, meet the three-month deadline, you can reapply and you will start the process again with the access request form. You will need to put an internal review. Um, If you're unsuccessful at that stage, then you progress to the third stage of review, um, which is at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. At that point, you would want to think about getting some legal representation if you can. Legal Aid, um, we do represent some clients. We have funding to represent cases that are novel or complex so we have some um, criteria that's a little different than the rest of the legal aid test merit test and it's worth acknowledging natalie that the criteria around getting legal representation is getting a little bit harder obviously with the criteria around novel or complex there aren't as many cases that are novel so if you and i also would like to preface this and say that everyone's facts are different um, this is an example whereas if you had a child with diabetes, that was a case that was decided by the tribunal a couple of years ago. If you approached us again with that similar case or and similar facts, we would probably have to say no. Yeah, so something that's been decided by the tribunal where we do have um, some good case law developed around that <clears throat> is unlikely to get legal representation.
1: So describe a bit about your role, so someone, mm-hmm. their application for access to the NDIS has been rejected, they've done the internal mm-hmm. review, not successful, they have only 28 days That's right. to appeal, so it's quite a quick turnaround mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm.
2: so usually clients will have applied for um, a review at the administrative appeals tribunal before they get to me so their disability advocate might have helped with that that's right so yeah. the disability advocate and that's another great reason mm-hmm. to have an advocate they can be there with you and help to monitor some of those time frames so once you get that second rejection letter you want to put in your application at the aat as pretty much as soon as possible so you don't miss that deadline and then you'll apply for with your. Again, with your disability advocate, apply for legal funding. And if you do get legal aid funding, you'll be assigned to a lawyer. Sometimes that can take a a few months, depending on um, the caseload that we're experiencing and the volume of cases that we get. But again, that just depends on how things are traveling at that time. Then you'll be assigned to a lawyer within the team, someone like myself, who specializes in NDIS reviews. Um, We'll review the documents that have been sent to us by the agency. There's a bundle of documents called the T-documents which are prepared by the NDIA. So they take all the information on your file, all the access request forms that you've made, um, any reports that you have provided, anything that they think is relevant to this question, they provide that to the tribunal and a bundle gets sent to myself as well and the person that's making the access request. So I'll get those documents and I'll have a look through and start identifying places where I think we need more evidence. Sometimes that might be doctors, sometimes that might be an occupational therapy report and start going about getting some of those reports underway. One more thing, if we're getting reports for you, we do have a small amount of funding for those reports, so that right. is really helpful when you get to this stage.. Yep.
1: and the cases generally go to a hearing at the AAT or they end up.
2: By and large they're, before. they're settling before the hearing, and mm-hmm. um, I think it, it's fair to say a small proportion of the cases actually end up going to hearing. They're often settled before the hearing takes place.
1: So what does the settlement? involved what so does that mean
2: the settlement uh, uh, for an access request is it's decided the agency either decides that the person is in they uh, agree that all the access criteria is met
1: or perhaps the person decides to withdraw for a variety of reasons and in the meantime so you said it can take a few months mm-hmm. to to get to that point is the person getting supports or help in the, the meantime, or is that in, a tricky situation?
2: In the meantime, so while the process of a review is underway, they're not necessarily getting any supports. Um, there might be some supports available in your local community mm. to pick up some of these gaps and shortfalls, but no, nothing from the agency. How long does it take? Well, Natalie, it depends. So I think from start to finish, so when a person makes an access request to the bot, by the time that they get to me, Realistically, it can be up to two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, so time goes by. So someone makes an access request form, it gets rejected, they take the whole three months to ask for an internal review. Mm. Sometimes the agency can take up to six months to, to finalise an internal review decision. You take 28 days to make a application to the AAT. It takes you some time to get some of these reports and documents together, time to apply for legal aid funding. Sometimes you have to wait a little bit before a lawyer is available. By the time that we're involved and by the time that everything is finalized, it can take up to two years.
1: So is it sometimes better for somebody just to do a fresh application?
2: It depends. It depends on those circumstances and what sort of problems there are. But if you do have conditions that are generally non-contentious, severe osteoporosis might be a good example and your first application just was really lacking in some of these details around your ability to function across the areas of daily living, that might be worthwhile making a second application.
1: And I guess all this just highlights why it's so important to get right in the first place.
2: It does. It does. If you can make a good application that doesn't have any of these tricky legal issues in it, um, making a good application will be really helpful for you to get the supports that you need sooner. Mm -hmm.
1: So just to wrap up, what are your key messages around access for the NGIS?
2: I think Natalie the key points that I would really want people to take away from this podcast would be to ask the right person to fill out the form because that person's going to that information that they fill out is is going to be really important. Um, getting the right reports, so asking the right health professionals to write the reports and again their information is going to be key. And of course, lastly, know that if the decision is unfavourable and you're not allowed into the scheme, that you can appeal that decision.
1: right. So I think that brings us to the end of the sort of access part of this (laughs) journey. In our next part, we're going to be talking more about planning, which is the next step, what happens once you are approved for the NDIS. So join us for the next podcast to hear more from Suzanne around planning. Thanks so much. Thanks, Natalie.
0: Thanks for tuning in today if you enjoyed the episode please make sure to share it with your colleagues and let us know if there's a topic that you would like us to do an episode on we'd love to hear from you our contact details are in the episode notes below until next time thanks so much from all of us here at the community legal education branch at legal aid new south wales